You know the experience when you meet someone and they start talking about what they do for a living and all this passion and knowledge just pours out of them. And it's so impressive, their knowledge and passion, that you could listen to them for hours. Maybe, selfishly, if you're in a job you don't like or a place in your life where you feel a little stuck, you think, wow, how do I get some of that? Well, I love what I'm doing, and I'm not stuck. But when I first started communicating with Melissa Davis, my guest today, I definitely wanted some of whatever secret sauce she has going on in her life because she wowed me. Melissa is the Director of Library and Archives at the George C. Marshall Foundation, the institution chosen by William and Elizabeth Friedman to be the guardians of their life's work. In crafting this series, we reached out to the Marshall Foundation to discuss archives and licensing rights and all the kinds of things that one does to produce a show like this, and they have been wonderfully supportive throughout the process. But it was Melissa's passion and clarity and well of knowledge about Elizabeth that has really carried the process through. I hadn't intended on interviewing her, but by the time we had just a couple of conversations, I knew I must. When you're seeking expertise to guide you through an unexplored world, nothing compares to a happy librarian. Let's begin. Hi, Melissa. Hello, Stephanie. <laughs> it's early morning for me. <laughs> Not quite so early for me. I know you're you're getting you're getting everything going there. Um, doing all that great work. So I I gave you a little setup. I'm not gonna tell you what it is because it'll embarrass you. But we'll just dive right in here with Elizabeth. Um, where where this uh, sit down is coming in, in the first season with you, we have introduced her. She gave she got her own episode, of course, as an introduction. I had to kind of move the gangsters out of there uh, because, you know, she just deserved that. She's our hero of the of, right. of the series. Yeah. And so she deserved that big setup. And so we've talked about uh, Riverbank and Fabian and all the way through the Zimmerman telegram. And then her and excuse me, her and uh, William making the journey um out of River Bay, <laughs> a little bit about how difficult that process was for them and uh, starting their new life. And we've just left her with um, Charles Root knocking on her door. Okay. Okay. Um, and I've set everybody up. They know that here we, we're coming with her. So we'll talk a little bit about, I do want to talk a little bit about the cases that she was publicly involved with. I know there's a lot she did that it wasn't public. Um, and we're learning about all of that as well. Uh, but two cases in particular really fascinate me. And I didn't have the time to go into depth with those. And I know, and everybody, everyone knows by now with me listening to this, that I am the worst person with names, with remembering the names, with pronouncing the names. It doesn't matter if it's a name of a it could be, it doesn't have to be a person. It could be the name of anything in my brain, right? And so, so that everybody understands, Melissa has the same affliction, um, although you do, but you're a little bit better. And you are, uh, I've introduced you already. You're the director of library and archives at the Marshall Foundation, which is where we get to find all of Elizabeth from Friedman's, their work, their their estate that they left to to the Marshall Foundation. So we'll get we'll get to that in the end. I want to talk about that so everyone okay. can understand sort of how, how why they trusted you, what they entrusted you with and uh and what you do there because it's it's wonderful work. Okay, so, so this is we what we've done. We've just got into this. Oh, and I wanted to get this. Yeah, I just want you to go because once you start going okay. it's the best conversation. Um so should we start with Root actually because it's kind of interesting. Yes, let's do it. Let's start with Okay, Ruth. so um, the Freedmans at the time had rented a place out in Bethesda, which was woods. 
it's very built up and part of the metropolitan area now, but it was woods then. Um, they called their house Green Mansions. It was surrounded by oak trees. It was this big old home. Uh, they had started their family. Barbara was about a year old. They had a, a dog that they named Crypto. <laughs> I forgot was, about Crypto. Yeah. Was so Barbara's cute. constant companion playing outside. And it was a very idyllic kind of a life. And William would travel into the city working for the army every day. Well, one day, um, this Navy man comes knocking on Elizabeth's door looking for William. And um, Elizabeth informs him that he's still working for the army. Um, and so the Navy man says, well, you'll do. And Elizabeth said she oh. figures most of the jobs that she got in her life were because her husband was unavailable. <sighs> I don't need it. It's so, you know, that was an era. Um, we've come so far since that era. I think we still face a lot of that. Well, and, and the irony there is that Elizabeth taught William code breaking. I know. But I know. everyone assumed that William was the expert because you're right, that was the era. So Elizabeth, of course, has waited a long time to become a mother. World War I had gotten in the way of that. And she was not about to give up the, the delight that she had in staying home with her daughter. So she made a very modern deal with the Navy which was that they would, in the morning, bring her out things that needed to be decrypted. And in the evening, she would carry them back to them in D.C. after William got home so that she was able to stay at home all day long. She was a work-from-home mom, which I'm sure the Navy had never even considered or thought of, but their level of desperation was apparent that they went for this deal. Right. And and it was the Coast Guard, correct? It was. Um, well, she was right. She she was originally hired by the Navy. She was soon moved into the Coast Guard, moved into the Coast Guard at that time was not part of the Navy. During that time, right. the Coast Guard was part of the Treasury Department. Right. Uh, the Coast Guard needed code breakers because prohibition had created a desire for alcohol that was not legally available in the United States. And so it was being obtained illegally. And we had the rum runners and the Coast Guard um, being a part of the Department of the Treasury was tasked with intercepting the alcohol before it came ashore in the United States. Right. Uh, the, the rum runners were using um, encryption to communicate with each other by radio. So the, the, the ships would load up overseas with alcohol. They would carry it to within a few miles of shore. They would radio shore that they had arrived at the given point. Small craft would come out. They would unload at night. Yeah, they um, had motherships. I don't think people get it. They, this was, uh, and they're getting it with this series. It's like, this was a massive smuggling operation. This was not, you know, uh, Ahoy, you know, fishermen in their little Boats, right? No, no. It was a it was industrial scale movement of liquor <laughs> right. over over oceans and lakes as well. Right. Um, and so these large ships, the the smaller ships would come out in the dark of the night. They would yeah. unload the alcohol of the large ships and they would bring it ashore. And so the Coast Guard was tasked with interrupting this process, uh, and they had um, six months worth. <laughs> of messages that had not been decrypted because the Coast Guard did not have anyone working on that. That's why they needed Elizabeth. And so within just a couple, within like two months, Elizabeth had cleared up the backlog, figured out a lot of the codes that the, the smugglers were using and was actively intercepting and breaking the codes as they were being received. Right. Now, Elizabeth uh, um, was a very canny person, uh, and she realized that with the radio signals uh, being broadcast to and from the ships, there was a way of locating the ships that that they had discovered that you could triangulate radio waves. And it was being used somewhat. But I think Elizabeth was the first one to perhaps incorporate it as a normal function of their work. Right. Was, was not only intercepting the radio communications, but where they emanated from and where they were received to and being able to locate the ships. And she actually produced a map 
of um, off Cape Cod and that that section of the United States off in the Atlantic Ocean, where she plotted where all the ships um, had had come to, uh, because she realized that they tended to use the same locations. Yeah. And so it made it easier for the Coast Guard to find them the second and third time before they got wise to the fact that someone had figured (laughs) out where they were coming to. Someone was decrypting them and then triangulating that and figuring out where they were. And that had not I don't think it happened that way. Not 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 in, a, in an effort of law enforcement, not in an effort of strategic intelligence. We just radio, I think, was also new ish. Right. right. And so that's why there was a backlog and nobody knew. You know, I, I always come back to this fascinating idea, though, that someone had a machine, a cipher machine and with the, you know, I, I'm determined to find the gangster who, who she was playing cat and mouse with. Um, so there was, you know, the idea that the, this is again, something that I think is part of the education process of this series is to get people to see that the underworld, that these, the syndicate businessmen that were running this, right. Were sophisticated, highly, highly sophisticated and had machines that were spitting out ciphers that they they would have their crew, you know, all the way down using. So, well, uh, you know that there were commercial, there were commercial, there were commercial machines. machines. Yeah, the machines right. had entered um, the commercial market for sure, and 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 businesses used them, and illegal businesses used them as well. Yeah, um, some of the the encoding that was a little bit less scientific used by some of these smugglers. Elizabeth discovered that they would sometimes take a novel and both parties would have a copy of the novel and that they would um, um, use the the letters off of the first words on a certain page as the encryption. And so Elizabeth knew that they were from books. But it took her a while to figure out which books they were using. But then once she had the books, she was able to very quickly, um, you know, figure out what the ciphers were saying because she had the same book that both parties were using. Yeah. (laughs) It's so great. I just love her. I just love her. Um, Okay. So while she's doing all this, one of the things I wanted to to talk to you about that I think people, you know, we're going to, we won't quite get to World War II. Uh, We're going to skip over that just because we're not there yet in the series. Um, And then you have to come back (laughs) because we have to talk about that um, next season. But the traveling that she did while she was working for Irie across these uh, six different agencies, she, she, she actually had to travel. And it wasn't just to go for the trials, right? When she started showing up and, letting people understand when they were catching these uh, the bootleggers and catching the um, the guys at the top of the syndicate and trying to bring them down and the businessmen fronts and all of everything involved in this massive uh, industry of smuggling that she actually was going and meeting also with the agencies uh, in all these different territories to help them understand what was going on and right. was really this incredible. I mean, she was a team man. She had her treasury department badge, but she was really doing it. I mean, she was really an agent um, going was. out and coordinating all this, this incredible effort in law enforcement to try to bring this criminal enterprise uh, under control, um, the, you know, um, and to justice. She actually spent quite a bit of time at one point uh, out on the West Coast, um, Oregon, Washington area, teaching classes on how to use the technology that they had at hand through triangulation and other things and how they, they worked to break the code and shared widely the codes that her little group of about six or seven people had broken. Um, so that they could be used in other offices within the Treasury Department, um, who were also looking for smugglers. I think it should be noted that Elizabeth was the only woman working for the Coast Guard, that the Coast Guard had had women working temporarily during World War I, but she was the only female employed by the Coast Guard, and she was, in fact, their chief cryptographer. Yeah, 
that she had men from um, MIT and other uh, universities. Um, She got to interview and choose the employees she wanted. Uh, She preferred those who thought analytically and mathematically, but also creatively. And so she had very specific needs and they allowed her the freedom to build her own team and to train them. Yeah, oh, it's just it's just incredible. It's it's also an amazing study in leadership. Um, that if someone needs to write the Elizabeth Friedman leadership manual, <laughs> uh, because she she did do it all in in a, at a time where um, and convinced all these men. They all I think because she had such extraordinary ability, such talent, and she was so diplomatic. Um, while also there's a little sauce to her. Um, you know, she's, she was this mind that they were all crashing up against, um, and either figured out, okay, we're going to follow this mind and listen to her and learn from her. Um, or we're going to do, you know, what Hoover did and just thieve from her and say that it was his work. Um, so that most of the men I find, um, and I have this line in the, in, I think in this episode, it, it might be the next one of, you know, Almer Irie really didn't do that to her. He really didn't take credit for her work. No. Um, and I think he he absolutely made sure that she had everything she needed as she was um, his sort of secret weapon. <laughs> she was, I call him, I call her his doomsday machine. Right, right, she, right. And he respected that. Occasionally she ran up against someone who didn't give her the respect she felt like she deserved and had earned. Uh, She was given an honorary degree um, by a college, an honorary doctorate. And I actually have one piece of correspondence to a gentleman where she signs her name, Dr. Elizabeth Friedman. And it's the only place I ever saw her use it. But she wasn't scared of of wielding that title when she felt like somebody was poo-pooing her. Um, She said that that she um, she was never called demure. In her life. <laughs> Good. I love it. The strength is incredible. So um, Elizabeth was also very involved in politics, as involved as you can be. At that time, living in Washington, D.C., um, they had no voting representative in Congress, of course, and they also were not permitted to vote for president. And that really ran up against Elizabeth the wrong way. And so she was part of the D.C. chapter of the League of Women Voters. She was the secretary for a while. And, and we have several letters where she really bemoans and is very frustrated with the lack of representation that the residents of Washington, D.C. have politically. And this was in the oh. very early 30s, 1930, 1932. So the women had only had the vote for a dozen years, but she was already pushing for, for the, the, the residents of D.C. to at least have the ability to elect their president. I love it. I know she was a big fan of Roosevelt. Um, she was. He, he really, uh, he really inspired her. Uh, and she, I think she took, did she take both of her kids when he was uh, in his inauguration? I, I know she was there. Um, made sure her children got to see that. And I do love all of the stories of her and what she did, what she was doing politically and how she was able to compartmentalize that away from the work at hand that she was right. doing at the time for the Coast Guard and then later for um, for the Navy uh, during right, World War right. II. You know, was she wasn't... Very, she was it, a very devoted mother, a very involved mother. Um, yeah. She and William had a 50-year love story that is just incredible. Um, yeah. And so she was she was a very, also a very involved wife. Um, and, and she had these activities outside of work. I think that she really was what we consider the the career woman who had it all, but she yeah. worked hard at having it all and keeping the balance, never never letting one thing ride over into another. Yeah, she did that great radio interview. I think you guys have that there at, yes. at, at the library in the archives where she's asked that question of how can you be 
this sort of working woman. <laughs> it was just so, it was so rare at the time. And she right. did credit, she credited her housekeeper. She said, oh, I have a credible, you know, so she was also always acknowledging and lifting up the people around her that were supporting her and allowing her to go have this extraordinary life while having a family that she so wanted and, and cared for. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone, as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening wherever you listen. I want to get to more about her and William and their and their love story in a little bit because I, you're right. You and I've had this conversation that, or maybe we'll just do it now. It just, it, it, it so much. She 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 was her mind was is is so extraordinary and her accomplishments so extraordinary that as we study her and learn from her and her work and learn more about it because it's all it's all coming into the into the discourse now after all these years um, that. What does get lost, I think, is this love story and how they how they fell in love and how it was um, it was a, almost like how they physically figured out how to allow their minds to play jazz together. I mean, they were it. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, that, about how they were even very early on as they were for creating cryptanalysis from those ridiculous <laughs> Mrs. Gallup and her ridiculousness. Um, but then the zip, of course, the, of course, the world war one, all of those uh, intercepts were coming into them, how they did that work and how they taught others to do the work of cryptanalysis. That's sort of the bond that formed between them. It was, it was because they shared a space together that was literally over one another's shoulders. Like they, they had to do it that way. Right. So I love exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, when they first met at Riverbank, um, William fell in love first. It took Elizabeth yeah. a little bit longer. Uh, but, but Elizabeth was working, of course, on trying to find the codes in Shakespeare that she had been set the task to. William was brought in to photograph the manuscripts and enlarge the letters because he was a photographer um, and using that in the biological research that he was doing for Fabian. And that's how they met. Uh, and before long, he was looking over her shoulder what she was working on and was intrigued by it. And she started teaching him. And, and, you know, before they knew it, he was part of the group there. William and Elizabeth realized pretty early on, there was nothing to those codes, um, <laughs> but no one wanted to believe that. And then World yeah. War One intervened and they found themselves in a position of literally um, writing the lesson plans that they would be teaching these army trainees the night before and teaching it the next day, they were inventing the curriculum wow. um, that they were using to teach the soldiers how to understand and break codes. They were inventing it the night before and teaching it the next day. Wow. So wow. they were with each other constantly. They worked together. Um, William absolutely treated Elizabeth as an equal. Yeah. Um, and he realized, in fact, he said at, at several points in his life that she was the quicker more creative, more intuitive, more intelligent one. Yeah. Um, and and they were very much a team in this effort to to breaking codes for the government, you know, before and during World War II. I mean, World War One, sorry, before and during World War One. Um, William, of course, was allowed to enlist and serve overseas in France. Elizabeth tried to enlist and they said, What? No, I wouldn't <laughs> let her. Um, so we have these wonderful letters that William wrote his beloved Elizabeth, yeah. uh, who was back at home while he was in France. And, and they are just love letters in the truest sense of the word. They would yeah. frequently use codes to express their deep feelings for each other, um, which got through 
the, you know, anyone, anyone who was looking at the letters couldn't understand what that gobbledygook was. So they just sent it on through. It was never <laughs> from the letters. Uh, Elizabeth kept every single one of, of William's letters. Uh-huh. Now, William was so madly devoted to and in love with Elizabeth that I am very sure he kept every single one of her letters, but we do not have them. And I have a feeling that Elizabeth, like Martha Washington, decided she didn't want anyone reading her love letters and she got rid of them. Oh, how interesting. We have none of her letters to William during World War One, only his letters to her. That was private. They are absolutely devoted. And and I know it was reciprocated. I I do know it was reciprocated. When they got to Washington, D.C., housing was hard to find. The city had grown during World War One and not shrunk back down to size. And they were able to find this this big, open, almost like a loft apartment um, and it had a grand piano in it. And then, and Elizabeth played the piano um, and William played instruments and they had a friend who played instruments and they would throw open the big windows to this apartment, the second floor apartment, because it was hot in DC in the yeah. summertime. And then the evenings they would play all this beautiful music. And Elizabeth said crowds would gather on the sidewalks to listen to them playing the music. Uh, so great. <laughs> what a life. And then they did a lot of fun things with their talent. Uh, they figured out, you know, it was puzzle work and there was a playfulness to both of them where they Absolutely. would just turn it into the, it, they, it's not like they couldn't help themselves, but make a game out of it with their friends, right? Here they were these becoming these giants, right? In, 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 in cryptology and it, it created cryptanalysis and they would do things like we're going to do a game everybody come that's how we'll socialize and we're able to share their gifts with people in their lives um, in a fun and exciting way to build this sort of social group around them that looks they like did. it it does look like that the friends that they formed really carried with them through their whole lives right they they I had these wonderful couples and people that they you know raised their children together so it you know, they were fun. These are the people you wanted to have as your friends. Um, you know, this is going to be a great party no matter what. And you're going to decrypt some code in order to find the cake at the end of the day. Or to- Absolutely. Yeah. They actually had um, moving, movable feasts. And so people yeah. would come to their house and they would have to decrypt where the main course was. And then they would go <laughs> so and good. they would meet and eat the main course at a restaurant somewhere. Then they were given another paper where they had to decrypt to find out, you know, where the 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 dessert was. And 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 it was a game of these movable feasts. The Freedmans also um, sent out Christmas cards. Christmas was kind of a, a funny subject for them because, of course, William was Jewish, although he wasn't really observant. But Elizabeth loved Christmas. And William loved Elizabeth so much that he let her Christmas to her heart's content. (laughs) So there was a Christmas tree and there were Christmas cards and their Christmas cards were frequently in codes that that the people they sent the Christmas cards to would have to decode the card to get the message of, of holiday greetings from the Freedmans. It's so great. And there's a very famous picture that they had of the the first sort of students that they trained. I think that was it that you know which picture I'm talking about. You can right. help me. It's where I need you to guide me through my memory here, where they had everybody turn into different positions. So they would even use, you know, when you think of this, it's it's not always language. It's not always a letter. It's you can actually uh, form a cryptogram, I guess. I don't know what else to call it. A message, a secret message by positioning people in different ways in a photograph, which I have to think, you know, William was part of thinking up that. Let's take a picture and have everyone stand. Um, so if your face was turned one way in the photograph, you were you represented one letter if it turned another way and spelled out. I think that was the one way they spelled out William's big saying that he always had. He had it on his desk. He had it everywhere. And it was knowledge is power. Do I have that, that right? Is, that is right. And it's an interesting photograph. It's their first graduating class of soldiers from their brand new curriculum teaching cryptography to soldiers that they had invented as they had taught it. And they positioned the soldiers in a way, facing the camera, facing right, facing left, um, to create a bilateral cipher, an AB cipher, um, like the the zero one code that computers use now. Um, and, And so each block of four depending on their 
position of zero or one um, or A or B, as the case may be, formed a letter. Each block of four soldiers formed a letter that spelled out knowledge is power. Now, the funny thing about this photo is that they were a few people short. And so it actually says knowledge is P-O-W-E because they didn't quite have enough soldiers to make the R. Oh no. But but that is the intent. Someone um, had to take the picture, maybe. <laughs> exactly. The yeah. um the saying was theirs that they shared their motto throughout their lives. Yeah. Um, and in fact, Elizabeth had it engraved on their headstone that they share in Arlington Cemetery as well. Yes, she did. Yeah. Oh, bless her. Okay, so let's talk, let's talk about some uh, cases. I the I am alone case, or I'm alone. I say I am alone. I know it's I'm alone. Um, it's just my brain, everybody. So the I'm alone case was uh, a, a case where she was, it, I want you to walk through it instead of me always explaining everything, but the um, where she went, let's talk about the federal courthouse that she found herself in. And I want to get in with these two cases I didn't get to get into depth with what happened with the press around Elizabeth at the time and her reaction to it. She actually was a very famous person at, at in this moment because she was such an oddity um, and, and no one knew how to what to do with her. And the press just loved her. She'd show up in these courtrooms and they'd freak out <laughs> and we'd have headlines about her. And she had her, you know, her suit, her hat with the flower in it. And, um, and she just would get on the witness stand and just eviscerate, you know, the defense. Um, and even the jury, like her friends that, you know, have like, let's go find the, let's go find the dinner, everybody. Uh, you know, here's a, she could walk people. She could walk a jury. And the judges, I had a feeling, really liked her. She could walk everyone. Just you and me had nothing, no idea what, what this person, what this was. What is this cryptanalysis? What is this cryptography? What is she talking about? Codes. And by the end of her testimony, everyone felt like they'd been in a classroom. Literally, they had been in a classroom. And it just, you know, that's just how she did it. She just educated, educated, educated. Knowledge was power. And it, it, made her famous. It really did. So let's talk about that federal court that, uh, you know, whichever, whichever one you want to talk about. I love the blackboard scene, you know, um, let's start with I'm alone case. I'm alone is interesting uh, because I'm alone was smuggling alcohol. Uh, The ship was told to heave to in the Gulf of Mexico by the Coast Guard. Um, The ship did not heave to and it was sunk. Yeah. And the um, the ship I'm alone was a Canadian registered vessel vessel. And so the government of Canada was extremely displeased that one of their registered vessels had been sunk. And there was a loss of life um, in the Gulf of Mexico by the U.S. Coast Guard. And so they filed this official protest in Washington. And it looked like there was going to be quite the diplomatic dust up. But Elizabeth, with her incredible skill of tracking down information and deciphering information and understanding information realized that while the vessel was registered in Canada, it was owned by citizens of the United States. That's right. And so there was no diplomatic cause for Canada to be unhappy that the U.S. citizens had been breaking their own laws and were rightfully when they didn't obey sunk by the Coast Guard. Uh, and and so Elizabeth was able to prevent, you know, this 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 irritation between Canada and the United States on an international scale. Yeah, it was uh, a big deal. It wasn't it wasn't little. We it, it, everyone thinks it's hard to think of. Oh, well, wait, we had a dust up with Canada. You know, our our friends to the north. We really did. They were very upset. Uh, I think the young man who lost his life was Canadian. So it was, was one of their su- was. And, yeah. and and some of, you know, some of the crew was a mixture of, of Canadian and American. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if Elizabeth hadn't dug deeper, it could have turned into, you know, a real fracas between the countries that are normally very closely allied and good friends. Um, another one of her very interesting cases was in New Orleans. And um, she had broken the code that was being used um, by Al Capone's Rum Runners. That's right. And it was a huge operation that brought these vessels up from Central America through the Gulf of Mexico 
into New Orleans, which is a very large port. And yeah. they uh, um, they asked her to come down and testify. And so she traveled to New Orleans and was there for a significant period of time, uh, testifying, preparing for, and then testifying at the case, and then testifying at the appeal to the case. Um, but at one point in the case, she could see that the defense attorneys were very much not believing her, yeah. that they were poo-pooing her abilities. They were laughing at inappropriate moments while she was testifying. And Elizabeth was not one to be pushed around. And at one point, she simply stopped in the middle of a sentence and turned to the judge and said, sir, can I get a chalkboard and chalk brought into the courtroom? And the judge said, yes, but it was kind of obviously not a request he'd ever entertained before. Yeah. So they went into the courthouse, brought in a chalkboard on wheels and some chalk, and Elizabeth gave a class on mono um, um, alphabetic, alphabetic. Right, monoalphabetic cryptography for the entire courtroom and showed how it was a science, that she wasn't simply guessing, that this wasn't magical, um, that this wasn't um, tomfoolery, that it was real science and how it worked. And at the end of this class, which may have lasted a couple of hours, yeah, uh, the defense attorney said, okay, we acknowledge that Mrs. Friedman is an expert in cryptography. And Elizabeth really, her opinion of this was that that was one of the reasons that the U.S. government won their case. Because yeah. in teaching that class on cryptography, the, the, the jurors were able to understand how the system worked and that it was a system. It wasn't guesswork and it wasn't play right. acting. Uh, and and it enabled them to make a good choice and decision because knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. You can't unlearn right. it. It's there. They've learned it. And she right. knew, just keep teaching, just keep teaching. Okay, so there was a woman, the, the def defense, these gangsters, <laughs> they had good attorneys, and they would try anything. And at the time, in one of the cases, uh, uh, you could... Anyone could kind of be an attorney. It was a weird era in in, in the law. Um, and so they thought they could just take this woman, the defense. Uh, I think it was even through Capone's attorneys, uh, this woman named Sadie, and thought that they could, it, how they would defeat Elizabeth, right? Because she kept showing up in these federal courthouses and she kept eviscerating um, their clients' uh, operation. And so they thought, OK, we'll put a woman up against her and then the woman can ask her hard questions because they were also as men, you know, they wanted to kind of weaponize her and tear her apart as a witness, as an expert witness. But it's tr it was tricky for them. They couldn't patronize her anymore for her intellect because she would get the chalkboard out. Right. Forget that. You know, uh, it, she they couldn't say, well, who are you? You don't know anything because she could pull out her treasury badge. Right. <laughs> she worked for Irie. So they thought, OK, we'll just get a woman in there and. And so they found this woman, oh my God, bless her, and uh, propped her up to ask Elizabeth to sort of cross-examine her and fed her the questions to cross-examine Elizabeth. And Elizabeth has one of the greatest quotes ever. We'll have to find um, this file, right? That I think you have the recording of this, where she just took this, she just tore this woman apart intellectually that, that was not really even an attorney, Sadie. And intentionally, she measured it up in two seconds and used every single large word she could pull out of her memory um, and just confused poor Sadie. Did, could even, couldn't even follow, she couldn't even follow the conversation. She had no idea what this witness was even saying back to her. Um, you and I have talked about it a little bit. I may have just summarized the whole thing, but if you have anything, yeah. Um, and she was, uh, I think she was from, she was Bavelacqua, right? Was that her last name? Say right. That. She was, she was from, this was in Houston. Yeah. And at the time in Texas, you could read for the law. In other words, you would study under an attorney and then take a test. You didn't have to attend law school. Or take the bar. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And, and so that's how Sadie had become an attorney. Um, Elizabeth <laughs> did not have, 
um, very complimentary things to say. She was mortally offended that Sadie was popping gum, smacking chewing gum in the courtroom while she was cross-examining Elizabeth. And, and you can imagine that that did not go over well. Um, Elizabeth was proper, but not prim. Yes. Uh, she believed in behaving appropriately in every circumstance. And, and she did not feel that chewing gum in the courtroom was appropriate. And so she honestly did try to bamboozle Sadie and did a very good job of it. <laughs> she did. Uh, we'll find we'll find those transcripts and um, and play them for people at some point because it, it's just it's just incredible to listen to Elizabeth's version of that and how she describes Sadie. It's great. Now, Elizabeth not only worked for the U.S. government during this period of time of prohibition, she also at one point worked for the Canadian government. Uh, the Canadians had seen her work and had heard about yeah. her and actually requested her. Um, it's called the Gordon Lim case. And Gordon Lim was a very wealthy man um, from the Orient. He was um, a, a gem merchant. He mm-hmm. imported fine gemstones, specifically from, from the Far East. Uh, and had a beautiful store, a very high-profile societal life, participated in the, the community, um, you know, gave charitable funds, very well known in the, in the, the community up there in the, the Seattle, Portland areas. Um, but the Canadian government really felt like he was making most of his money from importing drugs. And yeah. they couldn't prove it. And they tried and they tried and they tried, but Mr. Lim was very smart and he had very smart people working for him and he used very difficult code. It was not the monoalphabetic ciphers that some of the the rum runners had used. And so they asked for Elizabeth. Um, the, The government actually accidentally discovered how he was bringing the drugs in. Uh, that they were there would be an accomplice in the ship's crew who would bring the drugs onto the ship and he would remove a floorboard on one of the decks and he would pack the drugs in this floorboard area and the drugs packets small packets of several ounces of let's say heroin yeah. um, in waterproof packages would be tied to this thin rope So you had this whole line of rope with these packages attached and they would come across the Pacific hidden under the floorboards. And when the ships would get close to the shore, um, they would usually stop because they had to produce their customs forms, clear customs. Sometimes there was a tugboat involved with bringing the ship ashore. So when the ship paused offshore, this crewman would get this, this, long rope and he would toss it overboard to a swimmer and the swimmer would swim ashore holding the rope in his teeth while the the other man reeled it out and that's how they would bring the drugs ashore well the government accidentally discovered this when another ship got tangled up in the rope in the ropes uh (laughs) so they brought elizabeth in to decode um, the codes that that Mr. Lim was using so that they could bring him to court. And yeah. Elizabeth did successfully uh, break his codes. They were very difficult codes. They were in Chinese. Elizabeth did not speak Chinese. So she's trying to break a code in a language she doesn't understand in an alphabet that she doesn't recognize. You know, the char- Chinese characters are completely unfamiliar to Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. So they brought in um, a, um, a native speaker who could read Chinese very well. And they worked together because there were still patterns in the codes. But Elizabeth, even if she couldn't understand the the, uh, character, she could find the patterns. Elizabeth was so good at finding the patterns. And and she discovered that, that the very traditional Chinese tended to start their messages off with a specific polite salutation and tended to end their messages the same way. And so that was the, the foot 
that she needed in the door to break the code. And as she the was cipher. breaking the yeah. right, as she was breaking the codes, then the, the the interpreter would turn them into English that they could be used in the courts. So Elizabeth was so amazing at the idea of patterns and codes that she could literally break it in a non-Roman alphabet. Amazing. And and this also was one of the one of the instances where with the press around it, she got very upset because what was becoming clear, what had been clear to her always, I think, and maybe because they worked on the uh, uh, after the Zimmerman tel- telegram in World War One and William continued to work I- at the army and he was in the black chamber and this whole thing that, you know, in the courts, although it was great because they were bringing people to justice, what was also happening with the press covering it was that the methods that she was using and the fact that she, that she could crack code in, in an Asian language with these characters, the Chinese characters, was maybe not something that we wanted those who wished us harm in terms of the U.S. government to know that we had the capabilities to do or even how we were doing them. Uh, so she started to have this sense of national security being at risk pretty early on before World War II. Um, and I thought it, it, that must have even informed why she ended up, you know, writing oaths of office for Wild Bill, right? Of like, you know, people need to keep their mouths shut uh, as we go through this. And she was in that very strange space of, um, well, I'm going to have to talk and talk publicly because we're trying to bring people to justice in the court of law. And I'm teaching people and they're learning. But also, oh, you know, the bad guys are getting on to what our capability, what the capabilities of the U.S. government are. And maybe that was something that was going to cause a problem later on. And it certainly did by the time we crashed into World War II or the right. Japanese crashed into us, you know, and got right. us into that war. Exactly. Um, the the. The United States had continued reading communications after World War One. Um, um, the man who ran the program, they called the Black Chamber, was Herbert Yardley. Yeah. Um, a a new um, political person came on the scene who said that gentlemen don't read each other's mail. Secretary of State. Yeah. Yes, and yeah. he ended that program, which put Mr. Yardley out of a job. At the time, there were no laws, there were no regulations about what you could and couldn't talk about. This was such a very new science that the legal world hadn't caught up to it yet. And Herbert Yardley wrote a tell-all book. Yeah. And he gave away a lot of information and it infuriated William to the point where he got a copy of the book and annotated his his disappointment and his anger at Mr. Yardley in the margins of the book. And it really made William and Elizabeth look carefully at what do you talk about? What do you not talk about? And how do we keep this from happening again? Well, laws and regulations quickly came about that allowed, you know, disallowed people from talking about certain things, but you're very right. There were no oaths of confidentiality. There were no, um, promises to keep one's mouth shut or to never divulge or talk about what you right. do right. until this point in time. And I think that it was really at this point that William and Elizabeth started to realize um, that that the ethics of code breaking included the absolute necessity of not talking about it and where they had started out working together literally over each other's shoulders as William was working for the army and Elizabeth working for the Coast Guard and then the Navy, you know, and during wartime, um, they realized that that they really couldn't even talk to each other about what they were working on anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was a a silence, right? That that came in there into a into a love affair that I think was pr- probably very hard, certainly very hard on William. Um, it had some very yeah. long lasting effects on both yeah. of them, but physically, yeah. I think especially for William, especially to, for him, to, and with that Yardley case, especially. And I, you do you have that book with the with the? I have that book. <laughs> of William's writing in the in the margins, oh, and it can't is wait to see that. Yes. 
and it's an amazing thing to read because it's really William is a a very like like Elizabeth is a very controlled person. They were passionate mm-hmm. about things and they were passionate about each other, but they were not um, out of control people. They behaved yeah. appropriately in every circumstance, and and so for William to pour out his frustration and his anger in words on this on the margins of this book is really a window into William's soul that we don't get to see at any other time, no matter how poorly either one of them were treated professionally, they, they didn't let on. No, they didn't. And and Yardley also in that book, just so people have this, I think I'm pretty sure I say this in a series, but you know, Yardley was inventing too. You know, he was selling a book. Um, He was upset and he was just, and so, uh, some of those notes, I believe, are lies, 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 right? Um, exactly. This yeah, didn't so, happen. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, and so, so we're clear. I would be there with you digging through everything, but we, we came to do this series during COVID. So right. <laughs> are you guys open now? Let's talk about, I want to, I want to end, I want to let everybody understand um, why, William and Elizabeth chose the Marshall Foundation. Who was George Marshall? What is the work that you all do there? And then if we want to say anything more about them, if we have time, we'll we'll dive back into how they ended their ended their lives together it, it working when they were both sort of pretty much retired, going back to that um Shakespeare stuff to just sort of prove right. once and for all that they that Shakespeare is Shakespeare, everybody. There's no, there's no code. Okay, so uh, let's hear about let's hear about the Marshall Foundation and why the Freedmans chose you guys um, to to leave their archives, to leave everything they could. Um, the George C. Marshall Foundation was founded by um, President Harry S. Truman, um, and at the end of his his term of pres- as president. He saw that that while presidents had libraries, that not everyone did. And he felt like the fact that George Marshall had been a career soldier, army chief of staff, secretary of state, special representative of the president to China after World War II, um, the president of the American Red Cross and secretary of defense. Mm-hmm. And as an aside, to become secretary of defense, See, George Marshall was a five-star general, and five-star generals do not retire. They only leave active duty. And so to become Secretary of Defense, he was going to be his own de facto boss. And they actually had to have a special act of Congress to allow him to accept that position. But he had done all of these things, and he was the only person in, in American history who had held all of these jobs. And so President Truman said, you know, all of the World War II papers are going to the National Archives, but not George Marshall's. There will be a foundation set up where all of his papers from all of his career and all of his jobs will be funneled into this foundation to be made available to researchers as if it were a presidential library. Uh. And so that was the beginning in 1951. The building here is in Lexington, Virginia on the campus of the Virginia Military Institute. Uh, The building was built in 1964 to house the research library and the archives. It's a very large archives, three-story archives. Wow. Uh, Literally hundreds of collections, but the largest and the primary collection being the papers of George C. Marshall. Right. And so this was here. Um, the, 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 the foundation existed, although the building wasn't yet here when the Freedmans became aware of it. The Freedmans were, were great admirers of General Marshall simply because he had that same leader servant. I don't mind being in the background. I don't need to have my face in front of everyone work ethic. We have a job to do. We are going to do the job in the most expeditious and efficient way possible. And we don't really care who's getting the credit for it because we know that this job is necessary and must be done. And they found a kindred spirit in Marshall Mm. uh, and they admired him greatly. They um, followed him in retirement. They took the local newspaper so they could see what he was up to in retirement. Uh. Um, And they actually had plans to sell their Capitol Hill townhome and move to Lexington when they donated their collection so they could still be here with it. 
Um, And that didn't work out because William was ill, but, but they, they decided to leave their private library and their private papers to the George C. Marshall Foundation, mostly because they wanted to make sure that the NSA did not take them, stamp them classified, have them disappear into a vault, never to be seen, you know, by researchers in the light of day ever again. They were determined that that not happen. And it had happened. <laughs> it it had. happened. And did it happen to you guys as well? When after it they did. had, yeah, they ca- yeah, it did. Well, um, there. Well, the the NSA came and raided their library, their Capitol Hill home library, and they took notes from that original course that Elizabeth and William had designed in World War One. And William was just flabbergasted. He kept saying, "Why do you want that? It's garbage. Everything's computerized now. This is of no use." It is of no national security value, but the NSA collected it and they took it away. Yeah, so it was a bureaucratic, just so everybody understand, it, it was a bureaucratic sort of thing had happened where a rule had come down uh, within the agency and said, you know, you, we just have to, it, it, it wasn't like anyone had really analyzed it. It was just fell into the category of, uh, of material that, Needed, that was in a much larger category of material that just had in terms of how it been had been categorized that needed to be classified. Right. And so now it's been declassified. Thank God. Um, it has been. It has been. The, the NSA has declassified this material yeah. and they've been very kind to send us copies of yeah. it so that we have, we don't have the originals. They hold the originals, but we do have copies of some of that now. Um, then, so, so, you know, not to give away the story, but William William died earlier than he and Elizabeth were really ready for um, in yeah. 1969. Elizabeth had finished the cataloging of their collection. She supervised its packing and loading onto a truck, boxes, a file cabinet, their desk. And then yeah. she got in her car and she followed the truck down to the George C. Marshall <laughs> Foundation and supervised the unpacking of it. And then spent a lot of time here acquainting the library staff with the collection. At one point, the librarian said, we would like to take your library and recatalog it in Library of Congress. And Elizabeth said, I don't think so. And so it still has the original labels. This is how they classified their books. The first book they bought was book number one. The second book they bought was book number two. Of course. And their labels are still on their books and they're still organized that way. And they have their own room here at the George Marshall Foundation, uh, which is available to researchers um, uh, all the way from middle school, working on a history day project to professional researchers writing books. Wonderful. Oh, I'm so grateful for you, Melissa. I really am. You're a great librarian. I mean, I have a I have an aunt who's a librarian. Um, so I have a special place in my heart for archivists and librarians. But and I've met some great ones. But you are fantastic. Well, thank <laughs> yeah. you. You know, I every morning when I the 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 items in the in the collection are actually kept behind a bank vault because the building was built. Some of them were still classified, and the librarian. Yeah. Eugenia Lejeune had a, a um, had been a Marine and she had the military clearance. And so every morning I still had the bank vault, although everything is declassified. When I open the vault and I turn on the light, I say, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, because I have the responsibility to care for these memories um, and these records and these photographs and these recordings and to share them with the world so that these people are not ever forgotten. Elizabeth and William worked in the shadows their entire life, and now they can be brought to the light. And I take that responsibility very seriously. You've done a wonderful job. I want to end there. I want to end there. I'm so I'm so grateful to you. Um, you're going to come back. I'm going to yes. pull you back in. It'll take me a little while. I have to, I have to, I have to do uh, do a lot more writing now. Um, uh, but uh, it's just been a privilege. I I want everyone to know how supportive the foundation has been just for us and what it's like. You know, I'm just a storyteller, and so to come in and 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 interact with with uh, you and folks like you of like making sure that we get this history correct um, and we bring uh, the import to it right, that it it requires. And that requires a lot of emotion as well so that people can understand that these were, 
you know, when it comes to Elizabeth and William and even the gangsters <laughs> that I talk about, you know, these are human beings. And um, and so I feel like you've given us not just a a great picture of their work and and what's left there, but of them as human beings and as if, if people and what it meant to have these these characters um, of such high character uh, in there battling for us um, for decades, you know, to, and then kept it all, kept those secrets where they needed to keep those secrets and then entrusted Thank them you. to you. <laughs> Thank you so much for allowing me to visit with you this morning. It's been delightful. And I really, as you can tell, truly enjoy speaking about Elizabeth. Yes, you too. All right. We're going to we're going to all make our trek to the Marshall Foundation now that everyone's vaccinated um, and uh, and see, you know, what you do there and, uh, right. and give our the support. Library is, the library is open. OK, wonderful. Library's open, everybody. Let's go learn. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you. The World Beneath is a production of Imperative Entertainment, created and written by me, LB. Our executive producer is Jason Hoke. Sound engineering is by Shane Freeman, editing by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. The World Beneath is a five-season series, with each season consisting of 10 narrative episodes and 10 sit-down interviews. You are listening to season one, Treasure. Narrative episodes publish Monday morning and are sit-down episodes on Thursdays, wherever you find your shows. Or binge the entire season now on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at the handle at Lincoln's Bible. The Ed Milet Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. This is one of the all-time best pieces of advice ever given on the show. Actor Rain Wilson. The number one thing that psychologists point to with young people of why they are struggling so much in this mental health epidemic is they don't have resilience. So how do you build resilience if you don't understand suffering itself? The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen. 